Welcome to the Everyday Whiteness podcast series, The Uncomfortable Conversations on Well-Meaning White People. This podcast is primarily for white listeners. It's also a podcast for all listeners who unconsciously operate through a lens of whiteness, regardless of the body that you inhabit. It's not meant to shame you for being white or thinking white, but rather to support you in having more awareness of the impact of your whiteness as a cultural code of conditioning. My name is Guru Nishan. I'm a disruptor of cultural indoctrination and actively support the dismantling of false identity by curating uncomfortable conversations on taboo topics hiding in plain sight. I stand committed to the ongoing dismantling of internalized whiteness within myself and to make visible what is often rendered invisible in business, community, and culture. Welcome to today's podcast. I want to welcome our guest, Nike Oria. Uh, she's an educator and consultant. She supports collectives in creating safer and more inclusive spaces that are uh, inclusive spaces that are harm reducing for Black and Indigenous folks and people of color. She is also host of Catalyst Podcast, a podcast that prioritizes Black and Indigenous healing while combating socialized and internalized oppressive mindsets. I want to welcome you to the podcast and thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, you and I have just come across each other on social media. And um, I really appreciate the, the work of inclusivity and the language that you're bringing to this conversation. And uh, so then I reached out and just said, hey, would you come on the podcast? And you said, yes. So yeah. thank you again. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I like to start off the podcast by just, uh, especially this conversation, this focused conversation around everyday whiteness um, and even the term well-meaning white people. Like, what does that even mean to you when you hear that yeah well-meaning white folks to me means that their intention is there but they just don't necessarily realize their impact yet and so also to me it it gives a little insight of like agency work that may or may not need to be um navigated through but yeah, understanding like the intention is there, maybe centering the intention, but not know, not yet knowing the influence or the impact that um, even our intentions can have or our lack of intention can have. Mm -hmm. the, the lack of intention um, or lack of awareness with, with well-meaning intention. Um, it seems from what I read in your your bio that your work centers around this type of person or spaces of this nature. Is that correct? Well, I would say my work centers Black and Indigenous folk, um, but it centers centering, the practice of centering Black and Indigenous folk. So um, mm. a lot of white well-meaning people do come to me um, when they need support or when they have questions or if they just want to ensure that they are creating a safer space for BIPOC. But that's also within the understanding of, okay, that means the practice is kind of decentering whiteness so we can truly center Black, Indigenous, and people of color 
so yeah, <laughs> both it is centering like, or it is aiding folks who may be well-meaning into understanding how they can learn how to use your agency to then center Black and Indigenous folk and um, people of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really like the correct the, the correction where you're like, no, my work is centering Black and Indigenous folks. And as a part of doing that, I'm also assisting white people that might not know how to do that in their own spaces, mm-hmm. do that correctly. And um, that's what I heard. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's, it's beautiful because it's kind of like by default, well-meaning white people can have be centering their their intention but not realizing their impact and so the language that you're speaking to is basically saying hey what's what's the result are do you are are you centering black and indigenous folks mm-hmm. or are you not and do you not know how to do that yeah because a lot of times in decolonizing deconstructing work especially that you know is inspired by anti-racism or um, by providing spaces that acknowledge the historical and current harm that Black, Indigenous, and people of color go through, um, we do end up either centering the pillars of white supremacy in order to do that work, or we end up centering like the guilt and shame that comes with doing that work. And I think both are important to acknowledge. However, sometimes, it then leads us again to the cycle of continuously causing harm without realizing like we first need to understand those very nuanced feelings and very nuanced um, socializations that we've been part of participating in to actually get into like the bulk of the work. Oh, I just want to go back to where you're saying they end up centering, we end up centering our own feelings centering yeah. our own feeling in the work we either what did you say we end up centering the pillars of white supremacy or <laughs> our feelings to it yeah as, yeah as a result like a by, like as a byproduct of not knowing the real muscles we have to be working on so to speak right yeah exactly I think understanding your socialization and understanding how you have been conditioned to participate in these systems is really important because because they feel so internalized we do think that it's a part of us and so Mm. that's where like the resistance comes up and it's not only for white folk right like it's for just everyone who's participating in these societies and so um a lot of times when we feel that resistance we I can we attribute the resistance of like no this isn't right or this isn't right for me or there's like that resistance and the resistance of like accepting what may be a new thought process. But if you kind of are able to get out of that and you kind of recognize, okay, this might be a socialization that I'm participating in. So of course I'm going to feel resistance because I've only been conditioned to participate in this thought process. Then it's easier to have understand different perspectives and understand how, um, it isn't necessarily a part of you. And I think that also, you know, we attach our feelings to these things that have been placed, these identities that have been placed on us socially. 
And so since we attach our identities so closely to them, then it does feel a little uncomfortable or it does feel a little, there's a little resistance in kind of navigating the conversations that um, recognize the harm that comes alongside those identities. And so, yeah, I think it's really important to take that time for yourself of understanding like where am I in my process of understanding my socialization and what feels truly connected to me and the feelings and what is something that has been like instilled in me to participate in Yeah, I mean, you're talking about conditioning patterns, right? You're talking about like how our how we how our identities are formed in social spaces, socialization, right? You were using attached our feelings to the identity of the social of the social norm, right? So when we start to deconstruct it, of course, it's going to be quote personal because you came up in it, right? You have personal yeah. stories all about it, yada yada. There is a level of personal, but on top of that the social conditioning is more like the coding on -hmm. top of that person, right? And so you're talking about like how much work, like the question to ask the how much work, where are you on your own deconstruction of socialization so that you can actually show up to to spaces and center and, and, and have the conversation without getting lost in your own emotional swirl of unpacked trauma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like a lot of collective, like something I hear in the wellness and spiritual space is the the goal or the intention of like collective healing. But it's hard to participate in collective healing if you don't participate in your own healing. And it's hard to disrupt systems if you don't participate in your own disruption of the systems that you hold. So um it's even hard to hold safer spaces if you yourself don't feel safe in them. So it's just everything oh. is a reflection of ourselves. And I feel like we need to give things to ourselves in order to even be in the place or the capacity to give it to others, especially without um, burning out or feeling overwhelmed or shutting down. Which in and of itself becomes challenging because you we're living in a socialization process where we've been socialized to be productive and have all these yeah. right achievement patterns that run us as if our bodies don't matter, as if our well-being isn't centered, right? That's a whole nother yeah. podcast conversation we could have. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another pillar, right, of white supremacy, like the perfectionism, yeah. productivity. Um our productivity being so connected to our worth, um, the the neglecting of rest and rest in all capacities, right? Like social rest, physical rest, mental rest. Um, That's all very important to understand in order to do this work. But if we don't have the spaces to even like navigate what that looks like for ourselves, then it just, again, becomes a cycle of like participating in these systems, which like the systems and structures, that's like the whole point. (laughs) Um, It's it's doing its job. It's job, right? It's doing it well. Yeah. Yeah. When you feel unworthy for not working, it's doing its job well, right? Um, yeah, I, I hear that. And I love how you brought it back to no, that's just one of the pillars of, of white supremacy. You're talking about that productivity piece, right? And, mm-hmm. and 
in this conversation, you know, dominator culture, talking about like the pillars that really run us, regardless of we're having a conversation of whiteness or not, right? And and we can't properly center what hasn't always been centered mm-hmm. if we don't start examining that unconscious operating system of those pillars that run us. Yeah, yeah. And just questioning too, um, like why you do something a certain way. Is it something that like intuitively instruct? it's internally is providing something for you or is it because you have been told that is the way to do things I think those are the ways that like we could start out small and our questioning and our examining because again it can be overwhelming as well so like <laughs> you could be on on the spectrum of like not being able to acknowledge it at all and just you know disassociating from it or the other side of the spectrum of like nitpicking every single thing. And that can then be overwhelming and be a little ungrounded. So balancing the balance of the two, which looks different for each person. So that whole reflection work, centering yourself is important before engaging in this work in a way that's going to be sustainable and going to be intentional because again, if you can't center yourself, you can't center others. So if you don't learn how it feels to center oneself, then it's going to be hard when you are entering these spaces or you occupy these spaces to center um, folks who need that centerance in order to be supported, heard, safe, nurtured, and to disrupt the current structure or the dominant culture that may be harmful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well said. Well said. I'm wondering if I can take it back to where you started talking about like the wellness spaces and how mm-hmm. their conversation is about collective healing. Now I come from a, you know, yoga spiritual cult and and um the 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 built-in uh white supremacy and exceptionalism and language of specialness that's all up in the spiritual space and the appropriation of yoga culture is just it's it's whole topics that we've had. Uh, previous conversations on, and I have a whole podcast on that separate. Mm-hmm. But I want to talk. I wanted to really get your lens in on this because when these spiritual spaces and and these let's be honest, white spiritual spaces are speaking to the language of collective healing. Let's do collective. You know, we're coming in so we can kind of heal the collective consciousness. You know, but this major gap of how the space that they're creating in this little room or in an online space is not safe for all people. They're saying mm-hmm. all people. They're saying collective consciousness, but they're actually, right, we're pro- projecting a, a, a whiteness in there. Like that's to me why I use the language whiteness because I come from where it's assumed everyone, but it's not for everyone. If you look around, if it was safe, more people would be there that aren't just white. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't just have the renegade black people there. And so I just really want your lens on what that feels like and even your professional lens on collective healing spiritual spaces and the and the white uh the unsafety of it. Something about that. Yeah, I think 
when I hear folks talk about collective healing, it also seems like not intentional um, because to put the responsibility of millions of people's healing on just a, a small group of folks is like something that's very connected to evangelistic Christianity too, I think of like the under the idea of like this one being t- taking on the the responsibility of healing millions of others. So like, it's really hard to being in the spiritual wellness space of like, just a evangelistic Christianity concepts just being reworded into things. Repackaged. I think, yeah, collective healing is one of those things as well. Mm-hmm. But also it's like t- for the safety piece, um, I don't even think most white people feel safe in these spaces. Um, I think the safety that we've manufactured or has been manufactured like most people don't feel safe and then like there's a spectrum of safety right where more some folks feel less safe more than others but um the intersectionality is really important to consider like um the multiple identities that we have or the ways that we participate in society Uh, most people have these intersecting identities that are not accepted or are not a part of the dominant culture. Um, And so sometimes we either assimilate or we hide these parts of self or we just try to blend in. And for some, it does work, but ultimately there's always going to be a feeling of uncertainty and unsafety. And I think you see that a lot in wellness spaces. Um, And I think sometimes it's masked as like, oh, we're just not, we're not in the same vibration anymore, or we're not, um, I'm up-leveling and this person's not up-leveling, but really it's like you're truly seeing the community hasn't, has never had a structure of safety, and if you're no longer able to assimilate or you no longer have the capacity, then you're kind of just Mm. discarded, um, Whereas if I feel like if we built dedicated spaces of community in the wellness and spiritual field, and also just like hope in general, um, community is more, it's un- understanding that you're going to have different people of different identities and different lived experiences entering the space. And it's less focused on like finding the things that are in common, but it's more so of like understanding the differences and how to intersect differences um in a supportive communicative way and so the spiritual wellness space just mimics what we have created as a society Mm. with just more flowy language and shifting of evangelistic terms um and so collective healing is one of those things I mean think about if you you work in a like a corporate position or actually I don't really know too much about corporates but I'm a teacher I'm a special education teacher um and like something that they center a lot of in education is like oh sorry something they center a lot in education is center all the kids your why is your kids like remember your why remember the children center the children which is just like 
unsustainable. There's no way that you can center your mental, physical, and um, emotional well-being on children. But that's mimicking of like, we're going to heal the, like not heal the children. We're going to educate all the kids. The kids are going to get everything they need. If we just center them, everything's going to be fine. And it then disillusions us from like, well, there's different funding depending on different neighborhoods and there's not enough staff members and there's not enough teachers and classes are overflowing. It just disillusions all of that. It doesn't acknowledge any of that. And I think in the spiritual space, it's very similar to like collective healing. Center the collective, center just the good feelings. Like we're all gonna rise again. Where if if we all connect to our healing, then we're just going to we're gonna all up level and humanity will be saved. But it does it refuses to acknowledge like systematic oppression, and if we refuse to um, acknowledge the housing crisis and how folks are have um, addictions that are not support that come out of trauma because the society is not supportive of everyone. So it just kind of disillusions us to like okay there are tangible grounded earth issues that actually have nothing to do about with our past lives I truly believe or have nothing to do with um the way we up level or we show up or we manifest like you can't manifest your like out of systemic oppression <laughs> like those are things you can't do you can maybe manifest at easier time or like opportunities or you you invest in your healing but even that is such a privilege like we can't expect all folks to encounter the things that are in their lived experiences the same because we're not all given the same resources and that has to do with our structures and that has to do with the lack of community that we actually do have um and if we disillusion ourselves from that, then no work will be done and we won't be able to actually change these things and quote unquote, heal the collective. Oh, mic drop. <laughs> that was, you circled it right back around. Yeah. The trickery of disillusion. That's what I heard. It's mm-hmm. like how the system itself uses the trickery of disillusion to, to it's like a way to disassociate. So you're not doing yeah. what actually can be done and you just live off in this disassociated and that can go on for years. Yeah. Generations. It, it goes on for generations. Yeah. And there's like such a fear too, of getting out of the disillusionment. And I understand why too, like there's the side of, if I realize the way that I participate in these systems, the way that these systems operate mentally, I cannot handle it, right? Like mentally, you could just not handle it. And then there's the other side of like, not having the capacity to even acknowledge it and to work through it because we're not given the resources to heal or to we're not giving even the time like how many people don't even have time to invest in their healing because they're working or because they're taking care of other things and so I also to another level understand why people participate in the illusions and um, it's hard to kind of get out of that 
it's like either way we don't win. I just went to an equity and human rights conference and um, that was a conversation that was had. It's like either way you don't necessarily win. <laughs> You're going to be harmed in some some way. Um, the only thing is if we acknowledge and call it out, then if the masses um, connect to that and we are more intentional about how we operate in these spaces and we are co-conspirators, um, then there can be movement. And we see historically there has been, like history has not lied. So um, it is possible. It's just, again, too, like that collective community aspect has to be there. And like some people are definitely tapping into it. Um, it's just something that will take a longer time and that we have to kind of think through how to make more sustainable. It's it's such unlearning to before you even get to the learning, right? Before you yeah. get to the reimagining and the co-creating, right? It's it's the commitment to unpack so you can actually see properly. Yeah. And you have to be in the space of unpacking too, because there's so much that's going on. Um, and like some folks can unpack in a safer space and some folks don't have that opportunity. So I think it's important to acknowledge, like to meet yourself where you're at or to meet even others where they're at. Sometimes I think we forget that, but that's something I constantly remind myself too, like meeting myself where I'm at and meeting others where they're at as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've really just, you've covered some, some, what it feels like to me is how the predatory systems of the pillars of, of white supremacy kind of even warp themselves into the way that we are um, attempting to deconstruct it, right? Uh, because yeah. we don't have learned practice. So you, mm-hmm. you come back to, you know, it takes getting to community, but in order to get there, you start explaining these five other things over here, Right. Because that's what it requires. It's like, wow, there's stages of this. Yes, one, to be able to feel and notice. But Mm -hmm. notice isn't enough because there's reasons people don't notice. You talked about there's reasons people stay in the disillusion. Mm -hmm. And you can really, I I feel you holding people there. Like, I get it. The disillusion is in some way that the state of disassociation is in some ways a huge benefit for lots of people to just carry on as if nothing matters. And like you said, all will be well. Yeah. And I think that's something that's so important. And when doing this work, because also like decolonizing work, anti-racist work, um, deconstructing work oftentimes or not often, but I have seen folks who try to navigate it and they use the same pillars of white supremacy or they use the same power structures um so it just doesn't work right and I talk more about that yeah I think it's so important to like one of the pillars of white supremacy culture is perfectionism and so it's really important to understand perfectionism when doing the work of deconstructing and decolonizing and I see some folks like they still hold the standard of perfectionism 
when it comes to decolonizing and deconstructing work. So they're holding others to the standard of like, you're not deconstructing right, you're not decolonizing right, you're saying this imperfectly, you're using the wrong language, um, a lot of political correctness and things like that. And it's just like, you're using the same tool of perfectionism that we use in white supremacy, even when people are trying to do this deconstructing work. So, um, and like folks don't realize that because that's that's the only way that they've learned to like insert like power dynamics or to insert the right way of doing things. Like the right way of doing things is also a pillar of white supremacy. And so I think what's so important and what will really aid in doing this work is understanding that there is compassion that's needed in it. And that's the one thing that distinguishes deconstructing and decolonial and colonizing work from white supremacy culture. White supremacy culture has no compassion in it. It has no understanding. It has no grace in it. Hmm. Uh, And so that's really important to center in any, any journey or navigation of understanding structures and deconstructing and unlearning like you need to have that compassion and you need to have that grace and understanding um because uh, yeah we end up mimicking what happens like even the spiritual wellness space I've noticed that with business I call it bro business right like we mimic the things that have happened within capitalism in the wellness and spiritual space um with businesses even though we like most people who went into business for the wellness and spiritual in the wellness and spiritual space went in it to help and heal. But capitalism is something that definitely disconnects us from our healing and our and our and helping. So when we just reconstruct and recreate the power hoarding of these systems, um and something that we are wanting to be new or something that we want want to change, it really doesn't change. It's just rewritten and reformulated. Mm. Uh, And so I think that's really important to remember when doing this work. And even within that, that's a learning curve, right? Like you may not realize, oh, I'm using perfectionism in this moment and my decolonizing journey. Okay. Or competition so is another one, right? In, yeah. In, like when you start becoming so aware how you then, you know, like um, try to point out what you're talking about, make it, well, that's not the right thing to say. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it, there's so much. I actually just started a membership where I'm breaking down each pillar of white supremacy mm. culture so that it's more tangible and people understand it because every time I like talk about it with a client or in a workshop it's things that we don't think like we're just like oh that's just how things are like think about the amount of times that you hear someone say like oh I'm a perfectionist as if it's like also a good thing but it's like is it a good thing to be a perfectionist like we're only human and like the misconstruction of perfectionism versus having the pride in your work or feeling passionate in your work. Like those are two different things, but the way that we speak about things and the way that we affirm things with our words and our language is so mm-hmm. important too. So if we're using these, these concepts and we're then 
inferring them on an individual level, then that's also going to make the unlearning difficult too, because we've internalized these things apart as as a part of our identities or a part of our qualities as being human. As if it's a part of our personality, right? Yeah. So we think it's ourself and the qualities you're bringing up, like whether it's perfectionism or um, what are some other ones? What are, do you want to name the pillars? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's 15, there's so many, but some like really concrete ones is individualism, right? So like, that's the individualism versus community aspect or like centering yourself in a way though, like of not considering others and the impact that that individualism has. Um, sense of urgency. <laughs> I always say like time is really a, con- a construct and like, yeah, sense of urgency. And that also does not, it's, it's really hard for neurodivergent folks because again, time is a construct. The rights to comfort and this we, most people do not have the cap, I wouldn't even say most people, a lot of folks of a, the dominant culture, wherever they are, do not have the capacity of being in discomfort, which is what you need to be in for any healing work, trauma work, shadow work, you have to be uncomfortable. Um, fear of open conflict, also a huge one. Power hoarding is the biggest one that I see day to day <laughs> and like the resistance to give up power. And it's also something that intersects like, again, with white supremacy culture, it's not only that white folk participate in it, people of color participate in it, uphold it, mimic it as well. And it's a part of your identity because you've come yeah. up in it. You can't, when you have what yeah. socialization is, is literally it's you because you've been marinated in the culture you come from. Like a kid who's yeah. Korean by birth, if he's socialized in America, his socialization, his way of being isn't the same as if he grew up in another, in, in Korea. It's such an important yeah. distinction that you're talking about and, and the process you're talking about. It's so powerful. Yeah, especially if you've been rewarded for it too. Mm, uh, mm, because all your I, validation and your value is derived. So it's much harder to break up an identity that's that's derived from that socialization mm-hmm. than it is to one that that is easy to kind of deconstruct because it doesn't have so many, um, for lack of a better word, like positive memories. Right, right. And also I always say like, and when we participate in these structures, like everyone's giving something up. Some folks are gaining more than others. Some mm. folks are not gaining anything, but everyone at a certain point is giving something up. So like a good example is like whiteness is ever changing too. So like when whiteness first originated, it, it excluded several people that we wouldn't consider that we consider white today and um for those people to then participate in whiteness they had to assimilate but they also had to give something up and they either had to give up the community and the work and the collaboration they could do with people of color that they used to be able to participate in a good example is like irish folk irish would not consider white <laughs> before 
Um, but then when the whoever was a part of the white community at that time that was constructed saw that Irish and Black folk in the United States were starting to build alliance, then they offered whiteness to Irish folk. Mm. And so then Irish folk had to give up their community and collaboration and connection with Black folk, but they also had to give up some of their culture and they had to give up some of their ancestral harm that happened in a rise between the of the the cultures even before colonialism mm-hmm. and like so much more that they had to give up but yeah you're giving up something to participate in these systems and it's not always something that's tangible it's again that community that relationship that mental rest and mental support um and support in general um And so I think I've been trying to talk about, you know, decolonizing and deconstructing as something that's not only for BIPOC. Yes, we should center Black and Indigenous folk and we should um, really consider people of color, but everyone will, everyone benefits from it. Mm. Um, It's not only, and I think that kind of taps into like white savior complex like the white the reason why we there's white savior complex is because normally we talk about these things as if like it's something that white folk have to to participate in or to give to black indigenous and people of color Mm. but that's not the case and that's why things have not been working (laughs) because it's like, you also have to give it to yourself. Again, the reflection work, like what can you give to yourself in order to give to others? How can you center yourself in order to learn to center others? How can you combat these systems for yourself so you can use that agency and understanding to combat it for others who are even more harmed by it? We're all harmed by it. We're all um, affected by it. You bring such potency to this it's so true. Like when it hit me that this is about saving my humanity, you know, mm-hmm. my people's humanity. It's about re-indigenizing my body yeah. and my relationship to my ancestry and my practices that got assimilated to participate mm-hmm. in these systems like you're talking about. And it's when you, when you, it's a slight shift of the conversation, but it allows the co- the co-conspirator concept to really come alive where it's like, this yeah. is for all of us. I'm not in this to help black folks. I'm in this yeah. to help my spirit because mm-hmm. what I'm hearing is robbed when we say the intangibles, whether it's community, connection, trade, um, childhood, just all sorts of things yeah. that come from that relationship, early partnerships of, of practices of your own traditions, sharing with other cultures. The cutoff of that for white people, like you're saying, what was the culture before they got assimilated into the white system? Mm-hmm. That we yeah. have to be doing that ancestral work our own selves so that we're more available to the conversation where then we can be like, whoa. And if I'm, if my family has gone through this, look at what black families have gone through. Look at what indigenous families have gone through in that system in comparison to what has happened to my family in this system. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think also understanding like history is so important. And this is coming up so much too, because right now in the education system, they are trying to deter from teaching certain history or even just like rewriting, rewording it. And it's because historically we have already done this work. I was talking to someone, they said that history, it feels like, especially in the United States, history seems to repeat itself every 50 years. So it's like, okay, we're doing the work. We're feeling empowered. We see this connection in these communities coming together. Everyone feels in a good place. Then these structures, because everyone feels like they're in a good place, they don't continue the work necessarily. So then these structures come back into play. And then we have to start over again. <laughs> and it's like a high moment and then a low moment and then a high moment and then a low moment. And which so I think that's the system, you, which is yeah. part of that dominator system. Yeah. And I think that's really important to acknowledge. And also it's, it's like almost like we do have a roadmap. We know what works. Mm-hmm. We know that interconnection works. We know that community-based practices work. We know that talking about it and not ignoring it works. We know that using agency and reconnecting to agency works. So in a sense, to me, that's, that makes it a little bit more inspiring. Like we know what works. Now we kind of have some ways that we can continue that work. But again, also what's so powerful is these these structures and systems in place so mm. i think now what it feels like is how do we make these more sustainable how do we make it for it to be long to have longevity and to be long term so we're not going through like this back and forth and like cycle right like it's rethinking and reworking it to be long term and sustainable And I think you kind of see that shift now, but I think it's also a shift that is so slow. It's like inching slowly and slowly that you don't always know that you're seeing it. Yeah. And transformation can be elusive like that, right? It can look Mm -hmm. like the the peak of the worst can actually be the transformation into something that's hasn't been fully imagined, um, but it's in play, right? Yeah like a plant beneath the surface that's the the bud that's blossoming but we're talking about very uh complex things and and i and Mm -hmm. the the idea that you're talking about around the um what's happening in the education and and what's trying to be erased that level of erasure has happened before otherwise i would have had better education and so would have you right (laughs) we would have had better history books So I don't know what year that happened, but just like you said, at some point, whoever the people that are writing the things that that happen in socialization standards, right? Um, Mm. This group now got offered whiteness because they started noticing the alliances that were happening, right? And that's too powerful. You can't, so what's the division that's obvious? Well, let's make Irish people white, right? So they they Mm. created these, and now those power dynamics are part of, these dominator systems. Now, white supremacy, you distinguish specifically like as in the United States, but there's these level of imperialist colonial dominator systems that are happening worldwide. Yeah, And it sounds like what you're bringing to it is 
like ways that we can pay attention and learn from ourselves versus start all over again, because the system is wanting, quote, us to start all over again. So they're creating the same problem they created X years ago so that our attention is then disillusioned to something else instead of staying on the answers that you just laid out for us of what you know works. Yeah. And I think the folks who have been like, like this has been a part of their, their livelihood. Like they understand that it's this continuous, Mm. but on a more like outside of that space, like every day, someone who's just watching what's going on, it always feels like, oh, we're starting from bottom again. I feel like the progress has been like centuries long, probably. And the people who have been in it or who grew up in it, or it's part of their legacies, or they've been ancestrally ancestrally led to participate in it, realize that it's a long, it's it's been a, a continuous dedication of unlearning and reconstructing. So we're probably like not even at the peak and in, in, in the short amount of time, it probably feels like we've, we've reached peaks and we've reached valleys, but um, holistically it probably has felt a little, it has probably been more linear than, than we think. But I think that's also just thinking through, I'm coming to this realization now. I think that also is part of the, the systems, right? Of like illusion, <laughs> the illusion of process. Yeah. And the illusion of, oh, you, y'all, you already fixed it. It's done now. Okay. It's over. Like there was like this big commotion. That means it's over. And it's like, no, no. <laughs> no. <look> like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think that's also the fear of, again, what I mentioned in one of the pillars of white supremacy of open conflict. We have so much fear of open conflict and without realizing that conflict isn't inherently bad, Mm. but because that is a socialization, anytime there is a moment of conflict, then there has to be an end. And we take that ending as like, okay, everything's fine now. We're all good. And then it happens again. So yeah, it's all nuanced. It's really hard. Um, But I always say to start like small, start with one thing. A lot of folks, I think, a lot of folks who come to me, we always start with the perfectionism component because that really is embedded in everything we do. And in order to, again, do this work, you have to have rest. So if you kind of understand your perfectionism and you kind of understand how your productivity connects to your worth and your relationship with worth, then you can start resting to, and that then will allow you to do more of the work. Mm. I really like where you go with that because as a trauma survivor, I've spent a lot of attention, which is definitely a privilege to be able to quote, focus on my inner space and heal trauma. Right. And I never, it was only a few years ago where I was able to really see how my non-participation in this conversation was harm. 
you know, that me not engaging, it was a way that I disassociated to just focus on me, which, so Mm -hmm. hearing the things like individualism, perfectionism, competition, um, comparing, they seem like just your personal traumas that you might personally be working through as a survivor of a unique story that you went through. But when you can see them in a framework of these are pillars of white supremacy or, or, or dominator culture that have been used in imperialistic and colonialistic environments worldwide for centuries, mm-hmm. then we can see no wonder it's so hard to disrupt because we're not just dealing with a personal thing that we're addressing. We're also disrupting entire systems that we actually have survived on to be here. Yeah. And in order to deconstruct it, we have to be like, okay, this isn't good. And what if there is something better? Like what you're talking about is there is something better and it's been proven, but we need to listen to the people who have gone through that. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's been proven. It's been done and it hasn't been perfect. Because sometimes we only give credit when it's something as we perceive, like this has been the perfect system and this has been perfection. That's when it's acknowledged. That's when there's media to it. That's when it's shiny and bright, but it doesn't mean there's not richness all around us that we've never been taught to pay attention to. Right. And the standard of perfection keeps changing. So Mm -hmm. it's actually impossible to classify anything as perfect. It either keeps it like moves directions or it moves up or it moves to the side. And that's also the point, like perfection is meant to exhaust you so that you aren't, you don't have again, that time to rest and to reflect and to take time to center yourself. So then you can center others. Yeah. Which is the definition of what coercive control or cults are. And so mm-hmm. just in the conversation of predatory abuse in culture you know, folks, there's a lot of conversations we're having about cults and coercive cults. So if we can start to really see the conversation of, of whiteness as a, as a big cult that we've all been indoctrinated to participate in, and there's mm-hmm. just layers of, of um, what you talked about, everyone's giving something up. Mm-hmm. It's not just some people. And we yeah. have to be willing to really start asking ourselves and I, um, looking at these identities that are attached to these systems. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I love how you work with your clients and just anyone, um, but to really look at some of the simple things, the little mm-hmm. things in which we don't know are embedded into us, like how we're perfectionists or how we you know, don't make time for ourselves or whatever these things are. Mm-hmm. Um, that we again can't see as a part of the the pillars of white supremacy we just think are our, just our personality traits yeah and that's the revolution right like the way that people are activists or that they sh- like start shifts like it's not going to look the same for everyone like some people are meant to write books about it some people are meant to create courses about it some people are meant to be speakers and some people are meant to just do the work at home some people are meant to understanding understand how they participate in it and then enter the workspace and say, I don't think that's right or kind, right? Like it, it doesn't have to look and 
one way, again, the one right way, there's no one right way to do this deconstructing, decolonizing work. There's not, there's no perfect way to do it. And there's not one way that's better. And I know because the way we've conditioned to think about hierarchies, we're like, well, if they're out there protesting, they're the one doing a lot of the work. Not everyone has the capacity to do that. Does that mean that we should not? But does that mean that we should not participate at all? And like, that's the mindset that some people get into. They're like, well, if I can't do it in this way, then I'm just not going to do it at all. Because again, it's not perfect or the right way. But Mm. we're all going to do it in different ways. We all have different abilities and ways that we can integrate and can show this. The ways that we can show our agency and understanding how to deconstruct this, these systems and these stuff. Because we're willing, like you said, willing to center ourselves and really pay attention to how much have I unpacked so that I can be more available to this conversation. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It it brings you right back to you and the, the, I'm not going to participate in that instead of realizing the plethora of ways that your system wants to engage and participate. Mm-hmm. or has yeah. the capacity for, right? Yeah, yeah. And it is every day. And I just really want to going back to that with you and the work that you're bringing and the, the conversation, the, the language that you br- really bring is um, simple. It's like, it's back to you and look at the ways in which you unconsciously are upholding these pillars through perfection or or not um, being aware, like living in the disillusion Mm -hmm. instead of paying attention to what's happening in plain sight, like what's happening all around. Like I'm amazed at myself, I guess I want to say, at how many years I could go on and not have spoken out or paid attention to certain things in the news just because Mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention. That's Mm -hmm. it. It's not that I didn't know they were going on and it's not that I wasn't having these conversations with my Black and Indigenous friends. I just wasn't using my voice in any way because I didn't see that as a part of an identity that is mm-hmm. not ne- is necessary, not for others, but for my mm-hmm. reclamation of self. I think agency work is really important too. Like we, we don't, re- I always say that a lot of folks don't realize what influence they do have. Like we think of influence as such a huge thing. And I think it's because the relationship of power hoarding, we believe like the more power you have, the more influence you have, which to some extent is true, but um, influence, it can't be quantified, right? It really just depends on like the space that you're in, the capacity of folks, yeah, it's it's ever changing. You can't say like one influence is going to affect a space um, the same way that will another space. And so we really do have agency and influence. We've just been so, a lot of us have been disconnected from it or then allusion to like, oh, it has to be this one way. I think a good, a good example is like, now we're in the era of influencers, like social media influencers and the way that, we have been socialized to think you can become an influencer is like how many followers you have, right? And the whole idea is like, they can influence. But the way that the idea is that, oh, the more followers you have, 
the more you promote something, you can influence them to buy it, right? But how many times do we influence in our everyday? Like there's sometimes where I'm telling five friends, I just got this new water bottle. I love it so much. And then two out of those five friends are going to get that water bottle because they trust, they trust what I'm saying. And I also felt that agency to share my opinion. Like we participate in, and we have so much agency and influence that we don't even recognize and understand. And we have been disconnected from that in a way that I think has been intentional. And so reconnecting and building that relationship with their agency and then therefore then our influence also has so much impact on how we participate in these structures and how we change the, the structure and the culture of a space, so... Yeah, and yeah. how we can have the capacity to have a, a conversation that is an uncomfortable conversation yeah. and be able to hold the charge, be able mm-hmm. to realize, wow, I'm not trying to, quote, change someone. I'm just speaking to what's not not good about language in context in moment yeah. of real time, you know, but I'm not here to become this person's counselor. Like I'm able to get clear because I know who I am, what it means to insert, hey, what was just said is not okay. You know, Mm -hmm. but if I don't have agency, as you're talking about, if I don't have identity, if I don't see myself clearly, I can't engage in real time moments in which Black people and Indigenous people and other people that have more harm than any cultural difference that I might have faced. Mm -hmm. I can't speak to that in real time because I just brush it off as, quote, it's not a big deal, something you shouldn't pay attention to, rather than saying structurally, this is actively harmful. And then I can see my silence as a participation in that harm versus I think before I saw it as my silence as a way to not participate in structures that are harmful. Yeah. I think a lot of folks think that, right. They say it's like you're being Switzerland. That's so, and it's so false. So, but, but it really, I only got the falsity of it once I reclaimed my identity. So that's right. what you're talking about, agency work, identity work. You're nailing the work and it's trauma flipping work, folks. Yeah, we have to unpack because we all come from unique families and stories. And whether or not you've noticed, it's racialized trauma too. And if you're in a white body, you don't notice that it's racialized trauma because there's certain privileges that the system has allowed you to not see. That stuff blows your mind when you start to see it. And guess what? It blows your heart open too. You want to participate in the conversation differently. Yeah. Yeah. Because you feel it. You're no longer numb. Yeah. There's a quote, silence is violence. Mm -hmm. And I think more and more people are understanding that because again before it was like okay if you're silent you're not participating in it you're not saying anything either way but like yeah silence can contribute to the violence of harm that um is in a lot of these and a lot of the spaces that we do occupy I even just went to a workshop talking about being an active witness right like you could be a witness and you can witness and not do anything be a passive witness but you can also be an active witness where you're witnessing it happen and then you are doing something or you're saying something so that the harm does not continue also something I believe in is like I think a lot of times when we talk about harm or safe safe spaces it is 
the illusion of like nothing bad is going to happen but that's just not realistic I think that contributes to or that's a part of perfectionism like I created this space that there's no harm and it's safe it's like we're all human and especially when you're doing trauma or healing work if you're bringing different folks from different lived experiences with different traumas and different identities and different perspectives someone's going to get offended you're doing trauma work you're doing healing work and so I always say it's not about completely like trying to create a space that there's no harm. Like that would be nice. That would be ideal. It's more so about like, how can you be as harm reducing as possible? If someone misgenders someone in your space, you can be harm reducing in a way that it doesn't create more trauma right? Like harm can arise in a space and it doesn't necessarily contribute to trauma. It's all about how you address it. Mm. You could say something that is offensive. And if you double down on it, then that's when the trauma is created. Or if you say, and you're like reflective and you have a conversation and you're not afraid of the open conflict that might happen, it could be a really healing conversation. And I think that's what we need to start shifting. We need to start shifting away from like the perfectionism of like, this is a safe space. There's not going to be any harm. There's not going to be any disagreement, especially in the healing and wellness space, because in the healing and wellness space, we are centering healing and wellness. And so that means things are going to come up. (laughs) And it's all about like, what do you do when those things come up? don't ignore them. Don't act as if they're not going to come up. What structures and systems do you have in place? What have you done for your own capacity to hold space Mm. for when those things do come up? Mm. Again, one of your just brilliant mic drop moments. (laughs) Seriously, the language shift, it's so slight. And folks, rewind and listen to this episode again. Because the language, Nike, that you're bringing to this, it's like just this tiny adjustment. But language, as we know, words are powerful. Yeah. So you said creating harm-reducing spaces versus trying to create safe spaces. And let's say you're writing copy and you're creating this thing to create your event. This Even holding the concept and letting your body feel the difference is the nature of the volatility of the work that you're about to facilitate is going to bring up stuff. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. So what do you have in place to, right? So it has to do with how, what are you asking about yourself? Mm -hmm. What safeguards are you putting in place? Not just for you, but for others Mm -hmm. who have paid money or, put their time to be there or whatever. Right. And it's like a holistic, what I hear from you so much is this, this, it's this whole model that says we're human beings, folks. Yeah. And we're organisms that relate and we're relational beings and things are going to come up and we have to look at the history, the present, and really understand what does it mean to co-create space, Mm -hmm. build safety which harm reducing, really beautiful language, harm reducing space. Yeah. Language to me is really helpful to be intentional about because it's, it's just like affirmations. If you tell yourself like, I am kind, I am loved, I am supportive every single day, then you start to internalize that. Right. 
And so I think when we talk about these things too, it's really important in our language to do that. And it also sets like realistic expectations. I think when I first started questioning like maybe workshops or circles I was going to that were like, this is a safe space. The question that I kept asking to myself was like, well, how do they know? <laughs> for how whom? can we promise that, right? If the intention is, this is an intention for safety or like this is a safer space because we've taken these precautions, then my brain can understand that a little bit more. And I think hmm. sometimes we just like, it's also these buzzwords that are seen and that sounds so good. And so people just like slap it on yes. without really being intentional about it. And like intention is really important because it helps us, it helps understand our impact, right? And a lot of times, again, the, the first question, what is a well-meaning, well-intentioned white person? Like, I think a lot of times even being well-intentioned isn't intentional. <laughs> like it's not intentional. It's this perceived idea of like, this is what an intention feels like, but that's not necessarily what it is. I just wanted to really just land what you just said. Being well-intentioned does not is not necessarily intentional. And yeah. um, especially like you're saying in gather in, in wellness spaces or you know spaces that are kind of claiming inclusivity or safe space, the well being well intentioned reminds me of what you've been speaking on this whole time of perfectionism. Mm-hmm. It's I would rather perform that I'm that I got it going on than yeah. actually examine what's what's going on inside me. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of, um, and even myself, I felt it like feeling like you have to put up a front or an image of like, I have, I know what I'm doing. I'm an expert at this. I'm perfect at it. That's something that I, again, started when I started doing this work, I started doing for myself. And like, now I don't, I, I'm not perfect. Like I put up posts on Instagram and there'll be something that's misspelled. And if it's, if you still understand it, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it on. <laughs> like it's okay. Cause we're, it's, it's not realistic to always have a standard of perfection for us. Again, either someone is harmed ourselves or the people that we're trying to provide services for someone's going to be harmed. And most of the time, it's the people that we're trying to provide services or supports or a community for. Mm. And so I think, too, if you just allow yourself to, like, understand that the, the illusion of perfectionism doesn't really serve anyone, then you can start to, like, let it. Like, why, why do we try to be perfect? It's because we were told that was what we were supposed to do. Like at what at, I like to tell my clients to think about at what time, is there any time in your life where you being perfect or someone else being perfect served you? And like for myself, I can't think of a time mm-hmm. where I was just like, oh, that was perfect. And like, it, it made my life this, this way. Like there's never been a time. So why do we participate in it, right? It's like, why do we continue it? You know, I just can't help but 
But think of all the people that are doing very deep trauma healing work and coming up against language around internal family systems and, um, and, you know, other trauma informed attachment styles and, you know, and how examining our perfectionism usually comes down to deep level trauma response. It's deep level attachment, you know, um, developmental stuff that never happened. And so Again, I'm reminded that how you bring it back to if you're not folk, if you're not doing enough here and then engaging into this conversation. So you and being okay with the volatility of the discomfort of deconstruction. Mm -hmm. um, you, You can't be available to this conversation, which means you lose, we all lose, you know, Uh, Mm -hmm. because there is something better, right? There is something called when you reclaim agency, you're able to connect and create meaningful relationships and create cross-cultural community opportunities in which we center thriving instead of competition. Yeah. Yeah. Or we just center thriving over surviving. (laughs) Like, So much of it is just like surviving. We're just trying to survive. And, and we're we can not see that, that system is keeping us right. The pillars yeah. keep us by all these systems at play and slowly we can deconstruct our own little in our body, the ways we participate by upholding perfectionism in our everyday life or upholding competition or that survival mentality, or it gives us something tangible to do in our everyday experience so that we get to show up to this conversation. That's much larger with more capacity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Well, you know, I just really appreciate um what you what you've brought here. You know, it's really actionable. I also think that um uh we can listen to it several times over and and all of us, you know, like you said, it doesn't matter the body that we inhabit, all of us uphold supremacy culture and we don't know it. And so the more we can see it for what it is, the more we can actively like be like, there I am doing it again. Here I am doing it again. And we can see the ways that, that we stay plugged in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, like it's just having grace with yourself, right? Like just starting at one place and then it always intersects with other places too. I think that intersectionality like, again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Intersectionality is really important and recognizing that a lot of these things are not isolated. Again, individualism, like most of these things are not individual at all. And so what does that mean? And how can, in anything, that's a good thing, because it means if we deconstruct one, we start to unravel the others. It's just so true. You know, identity formation in the trauma healing journey you know, it, it leads you into this place because if you've grown up in, in the United States of America, um, you cannot not be participating in active white supremacy culture. It's so embedded into the, the everyday components of our existence. If you're in countries around the world, it's still that dominator culture of colonialism and, and, and how white supremacy is embedded that colorism, all that is still at play. And it's, 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 
even the caste, the trauma of caste and all the separations of class, like that intersectionality is necessary because it's so easy to just be like, I'm dealing with my own things instead of realizing that, no, it's all the same web. Mm -hmm. It's all the same web. And we disengage from certain types of conversations as a part of these um, unique mechanisms of, of supremacy culture. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, it's so powerful. Um, The, the simple and yet very profound um, nuances that I, I feel like we really got from, from speaking today. And I just really appreciate that the socialization, harm reducing versus safe space and and really thinking about the words and the language that we bring to um, to the conversations that we're having or not having. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the compassion, the grace, how the supremacy culture keeps us on self-attack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which which makes it easier to then self attack those that are different and and keeps us all separate instead of realizing wow there is much more of a a unity and connectivity possible and plausible. Yeah, yeah. What more? What last do you want to say to our listeners today, Mikey? I just want to say like embrace your humanity, embrace being human, and embrace the humanity of others. Um, if we just could all root back to that, I think that would aid in our intersections of understanding one another and combating, again, these systems that harm all of us and that prey on us being human. Mm. Yes, that prey on us being human, feeling our humanity, the humanity of our own hearts and the humanity of each other. These systems have kept us numb purposefully. Mm-hmm. That's a part of the disconnection strategy, but it's not yeah. our nature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Such brilliant wisdom today. Thank you so much for lending your voice and, and bringing your, your, your richness and your, your deep heart. Oh, thank you for having me. Please tell us about your song. I always ask listeners to bring a song to their episode and tell us why you chose this one. Yeah. The song I chose is, um, Got a Long Way to Go by Cassie. And I think the song, if you listen to the lyrics, it it's the standard of like, if you're not ready to go along this journey with like, just holistically, but if you're not ready along to, if you're not ready to go along this journey, then you just have a long way to go to get there. And that's okay. But also knowing your worth and knowing what you deserve and knowing that you deserve to be safe and witnessed and supported in any space you occupy. So anyone who's not willing to do the work or to support that work, or even if they don't have the capacity, that's okay. But they could either meet you at another time or yeah. So lovely. Um, I realized as you're explaining the beauty of the song, which we're going to play your song here in a second, I realized before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to speak to your podcast at all um, and let us know about your work. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I have a a podcast. It's called Catalyst Podcast Decolonizing Spaces. That's where I talk. Well, first I center Black and Indigenous voices, experiences, and healing. And I talk about these socializations and I 
talk about how we could heal them, how we can navigate them. Um, and then I also talk about a couple personal things that I go through that connect and resonates, but yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful little community that I have on there. And so if you're ever interested on having somewhere where you can actively do this work in a way that's like more tangible and you can listen to it um, and you want to kind of ground in more decolonizing work, uh, Catalyst is a perfect place to do that. Beautiful. Well, the link to your website and the podcast will be in the show notes. So be sure to check that out, folks. And let's listen to her song. Now, because of copyright, we don't listen to the whole song, as you know. <laughs> However, you can listen to, um, in the show notes, there will be a link to the Spotify playlist for this podcast. So you can listen to this goodness there. And here we go. And it's just okay, because we can get better. Yes. <laughs> no judgment. <laughs> and where the self-compassion comes in, right? Recognizing that, not being in the disillusion. Hey, it's yeah. okay. Not being ready and, and noticing, right? And doing what you can wherever you're at. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate your voice in this conversation. And um, thank you for the work that you're doing and look forward to hearing your podcast as well. All right, oh. folks, really appreciate um, you listening. Please be sure to share this podcast with a friend and also rate and review it on your favorite podcasting platform uh, to really help um, increase our viewership. Thank you so much. And we'll tune in soon. The information presented in this podcast are for general educational purposes only. The views and opinions expressed are solely the views of the individuals involved. By listening, you agree not to use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Nothing in this podcast is intended to replace the services of a trained therapist, doctor, or health professional, or otherwise to substitute for professional mental health, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Guru Nishan LLC and affiliate organizations shall under no circumstances be liable to any listener of the podcast or viewer for any action or inaction on your part as a result of the content you consume on this podcast or for any adverse reaction, including any emotional distress you experience as a result of consuming this podcast.